All right, so uh, hopefully you all have an outline that came in your bulletin, and you, you definitely will uh, be able to follow what I'm saying a lot better if you follow in the outline. This at the very top line that says Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity Series. Notice I changed it from uh, the 19 GCF uh, 2019 and 20 version to 2019 to 22 version because uh, this emphasis, emphasis five, uh, rediscovering and restoring the Bible as the Word of God. What uh, I put a longer subtitle, I'm going to get to that in just a second. But uh, today's title is The Infallible, Effectual Living Word of the Living God. And you'll need to, to know the definition of all that meaning. You know, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that we do speak wisdom uh, to those who are mature, but not a wisdom that's from this age. Um, let's, let's get that back door closed or whatever. So, um, if if uh, somebody could... So if, um, and then he goes on to say, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. I think I, we had Jeff and Gene over for dinner Thursday night, and one among many topics that came up is every academic discipline, every career, every job always has a jargon that is a vocabulary specific to it. And there's kind of a, both in, in uh, evangelical circles, this goes back for about 150 years, but it's a growing thing. Uh, There's kind of an anti-intellectual bias. Like, I don't want to read books. I don't want big words. I want my faith to be simple and easy and and so forth. But uh, obviously, we're dealing with the God who created the heavens and created the earth. And uh, his brain's pretty big. (laughs) It's uh, omnipotent, omniscient, infallible, immutable, all those sorts of things. So, um, you know, infallible and effectual are actually theological terms that, I'm, that uh, hopefully by the end of today, if you didn't know what they meant already, you will. Uh, so that's, that's kind of important. Um, and I would encourage you that, uh, you know, the, the, the greatest... Um, journey you can possibly have in life is the journey to love God uh, more purely and more completely and to know him more fully. And uh, there's no greater adventure. Uh, I, uh, in my pre-Christian days, I was pretty wild in terms of uh, lots of things, let's just say. <laughs> and uh, uh, part of that, I think, is because God created in us, you know, Ecclesiastes tells us that God has put eternity in man's heart. You know, uh, St. Augustine put it this way, Lord, you've made it us for yourself, and our hearts are ever restless until they find their rest in thee. And so you actually have kind of a God-shaped need inside of you. And one thing that you have a, a, a need for is to give your life to something that's ultimately eternally dangerous, eternally risky, eternally important. And, uh, you know, we are dealing with uh, every person you meet, as C.S. Lewis once waxed eloquent about, I'm not going to quote him exactly because I don't have it memorized, but, you know, every person you meet, you're either helping them to a destiny where if you could see them uh, 
in their completed state, you would, you would shrink, you would withdraw in horror. Or you're helping them to a destiny that you would, that you would probably need to be reminded, uh, don't worship me, I'm only a man, uh, like Paul and, and uh, his compatriots had to do in, in uh, Crete and so forth, uh, because of the glory that, that, that we're going to be in, in, uh, filled with. So uh, these are exciting and wonderful things. So um, at the top of the uh, page, there are three scripture verses, which are probably the, the most important verses for this series. This series will probably take three or four years. Uh, it should come in hopefully somewhere around 200 messages. We've been doing this series for about nine months, and we're looking at 15 emphasis, which we are putting up here on the board, and so that uh, one through five will give way to six through 10, as it just did, on cue, wow. Um, and, uh, and then through 11 through 15, and we are now on emphasis five, part C, okay? So in, uh, just to remind us, in emphasis uh, 5A, uh, which is Roman numeral four there, we gave an introduction to the fact that what this series is all about is rediscovering various emphasis. In other words, doing a restudy, a rethink, mining the scriptures, if you will, with the assumption that a lot of our biblical Christianity in our day is not as um, biblical as we think it is. And uh, so perhaps uh, we need to do a little bit of a rethink. And if we, that is a prerequisite, if we're going to, what the church is supposed to be is the body of Christ, a community of the redeemed, a fellowship of the saints. It's supposed to be something that embodies the ways of God, the heart of God, and the word of God. And so if we're going to restore things, if we're going to uh try to do uh, the church the way Jesus envisioned. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. If we're going to do that, uh, we first got to do a rethink. And so uh, we spent uh, nine months rethinking Ephesus 1 through 4, which uh, have to do with loving God and a number of things. You'll see them come back up from time to time there. Um, and uh, then again, 5A, we looked at the idea of re rediscovering and restoring all Scripture as the Word of God. One of the key verses we shared in that is Psalm 119, 116, the sum of thy word is truth. And we talked a little bit about the importance of a sum. If you, you know, I, I, I like uh, especially college football and hope. Uh, um, and, uh, of course, college football, you have a lot of sums like seven, three, seven, three, occasionally two. Um, and, you know, once in a while they miss the extra point and, and so forth. And if you take away, uh, like, you know, I often will actually think of uh, a game, uh, uh, where's Logan? Like Ohio State versus Michigan is like, well, it was seven touchdowns and a field goal to one touchdown and a field goal. <laughs> no, no, Logan's our, our uh, resident Michigan fan. Every church needs one. 
Um, so, um, and uh, we we love to. Uh, I think we've watched the Ohio State Michigan game together every year since Logan was about seventh grade, something like that. So, um, you know, if you take away two or three touchdowns, the sum the sum is quite different. And so one of the things the Bible is clearly saying, and this is what we focused on in 5A, we have a a culture today that uh, negates uh, several aspects of the Word of God in the the so-called Bible-believing Christianity. Uh, One of the things that's amazing to me is that when you look up on the Internet the Scripture readings, for the major denominations, uh, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican, uh, Methodist, etc., et um, th- what used to be a tradition for, for uh, 1950 years of church history was the scripture readings always included significant portions from the Old Testament. Now, if, if anything, there's a... Uh, something from one of the Psalms or something, but the Old Testament is pretty much ignored. And that's in almost every branch of Christian thinking today. Uh, You would expect the Roman Catholics and the Anglicans and the Lutherans who have legitimate reason to trace their ancestry into into, uh, the early centuries of the church to not be susceptible to that, but it's just not the case. And so, um, you know, if you, if, if you take away a certain part of the Scripture, then the sum is completely different. It actually twists or, or uh, perverts your thinking on the part you are reading. And so you end up with an interpretive framework that's quite wrong. And you think you know it all, but you don't know it all. And it's amazing to me, uh, one of the marks of spiritual maturity that I that you you know we work a lot with one on one helping people grow and discipling them and so forth and um, you uh, one of the marks of people who are mature and stable and so forth is that they're not know it alls <laughs> you know um, and that's that's um, uh, you know they actually think I know very little. And I need to I need to study and I need to grow and I need to read books and I need to know the scriptures better and so forth. And if you ever get away from that, uh, you're usually in trouble. So then uh, the the second week of this particular section on the scriptures, we looked at the approach of our Lord Jesus to, to all scripture. And there I have listed there Roman numeral five a number of the key scriptures we looked at last Sunday. Um, and, uh, of course, that's available on podcast. There's a, at the top, under Emphasis 5C in small print, you can, uh, you can email Stephen if you want a copy of the outline. You can always see the, any of the folks that work in the sound room or whatever, they have copies. And that's always available if you want, want to get back. But we looked at the fact that our Lord Jesus himself made uh, about a dozen statements in the Gospels about the importance of the entire Bible. And so as Christians, we are supposed to be followers of Christ, and Christ is making it very clear 
that he wants us to know the whole Bible. All right, so now that gets us into the subtitle I added in, in italics up at the top. So what we're going to do from here is over the next probably about one year, hopefully less, hopefully we can get it down to nine or ten months, we're going to look at uh, two things. First, the positive case of the idea of pursuing the restoration and integration of comprehensive uh, hermeneutical approaches. Now, what does all that mean? Hermeneutics is uh, the study of how to interpret the scriptures. Whether you know it or not, when you read anything, you come to it already with an interpretive framework based on your background, uh, your education level, what you have been or have not been exposed to thinking-wise. You already have a set of assumptions when you read the Bible. And even if, uh, uh, I'll pick on John Bradbury because he knows I love and admire him, John Bradbury was one that, very common today, had not, not had a whole lot of Christian background. But uh, when we started meeting, we, you know, when I first met John, we had a nice talk after church for an hour or two, which made us late for the picnic. But I think they saved a hamburger for us. But uh, um, we, we, uh, I gave John a book to read, and he was so interested that by, we had breakfast Thursday morning, four days later, and he'd already read the whole book and had some very interesting and good thoughts about it. And he already had a series of assumptions about Christianity having only been to church once or twice in his life. Because you cannot, uh, you cannot grow up in, in America today without having some ideas in your head about wrong or right ideas, or twist, partially wrong, partially right, uh, confused, twisted, whatever they are. But you have assumptions about Christianity, about the Bible, about how to read it and how to interpret it. And those uh, may be well studied and well thought out, or they may not be. And so uh, examining your paradigms of interpretation is what hermeneutics means. Hermeneutics is just a branch of theology that everybody has in their head, whether you know it or not, that are the assumptions you bring to the interpretation of the scriptures. And so one of the, what we're trying to do um, in the next five or six months is we're going to look at uh, 20 to 30 teachings, hopefully less than 30, hopefully more like 25 or less, about how to look at the Bible holistically. You know, how, so we're going to look at some things like we're going to do uh, the major sections of the Old Testament to a Jewish thinker versus the major sections of the Old Testament to a modern Protestant thinker. We're going to look at the major sections of the New Testament and uh, so forth and, and, and all sorts of other things. We're going to look at major themes that unite Scripture. So if you notice in the 15 emphasis, one of the ones that seems to be lacking is the idea of covenant. And that seems a little strange because God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And there's probably no more important subject than covenant. 
this is a subject which is uh, manifestly misunderstood in our culture. Our divorce rate is the key to that. And uh, I guess I've owned, uh, I don't know, six or so, seven houses over my life. I'm uh, 63 years old. But uh, I think I was, I don't know, 23 or four by the time I owned my first house. And I noticed that uh, at the closing, there's at least 30 more documents today than there was uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Because uh, we have become such a, co- a culture of covenant breaking uh, as our divorce rate and, and uh, our church hopping and all sorts of other things uh, testify to that they want to lock you down every which way uh, that they can. You know, I, I tell a joke that you can ask me about in the fellowship hall. I don't have time for this one today. About... Uh, a professor who said, don't give me any of these 1,000 excuses for why you're missing the final. Uh, it's, it's a joke worth hearing, so I'll just, you can uh, ask me about it at lunch today. But, um, you know, the fact is, uh, they, you know, they, people just keep inventing new ways to not have to live the covenant. And so uh, the Bible, we call it the old covenant and the new covenant, The Old Covenant, as we've pointed out many times, is a misnomer because what the Old Testament is doesn't actually uh, get installed till Exodus chapter 19, 69 chapters into the Bible. And before the Old Covenant is inaugurated, let me just quickly count my head. There's uh, five major uh, covenants out of the eight major covenants of the Bible before, before the old covenant gets started. So I prefer to call what, what Christians today call the old covenant, I call them the Hebrew scriptures or the Jewish scriptures, Hebrew scriptures. Uh, so, uh, in, uh, so part of what we're going to look at in, uh, in, the, in this positive side, this pursuing the restoration and integration of comprehensive uh, hermeneutical approaches, comprehensive ways to study and read the Bible, is, the, is uh, we're going to do several weeks just on the subject of covenant. So I guess uh, Catherine's excellent teaching today. I, it was, uh, I, I felt a little bad for Catherine. The schedule got changed, so she had, you know, she... We had uh, dinner guests Wednesday and Thursday night, but uh, Monday night, Tuesday night, Friday night, and about 10 hours yesterday, probably eight uh, or so, and, uh, and, you know, I remember at 11 o'clock saying, come on, Catherine, you really need to wind this up and get to bed. She was, per, you know, preparing our, her Calvin uh, message, which if you missed that this morning, that it was a very, very good message. So, um, and, and of course, it's uh, available on videocast. Um, See Josiah back in the sound room about how to do, listen to that if you want. All right, so uh, so then uh, after we do that for about 25 to 30 weeks, then we're going to spend hopefully, again, less than 30, hope more like 20 to 25 weeks on the negative side of things, and that is identifying so that we can eliminate various contemporary reductionist theologies. Part of what we're up against today 
is in the, in the so-called Bible-believing Christianity, there is, like in the time of Christ, and in, in especially within the thinking of the Pharisees, which influenced all of Israel quite a bit, uh, Jesus says, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the teachings of men. And so uh, they're just like in the time of Christ, there was a great movement for two or 300 years prior to Christ's coming that actually changed the ways of looking at the Hebrew scriptures so that it reduced them. So that it lessened the impact, so that it erased the importance of certain things. And part of what Jesus was all about, that's why in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most foundational teachings of the whole Bible, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is uh, teaching his disciples what it means to be a disciple of Christ, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the starting chapters uh, in many ways for how do you follow Jesus. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts, depending on how you count them, with 9 to 12 uh, Beatitudes. You could probably count it as 8 to 12, somewhere, and depends on how you count them. Um, those are attitudes and motivations that we have to have in order to begin to follow Christ. And uh, if we're missing those, we can go to church all we want. We can read the Bible all we want. We can think we're a Christian all we want but we won't actually be a Christian in substance. Uh, We'll be what's called a nominal Christian, Christian in name or in some outward accoutrements, uh, like we go to church or something of that nature, or we say grace at the dinner table in our family, or or we listen to Christian radio or something, um, contemporary Christian pop music or something, Uh, all of which can be wonderful or not. Um, and, uh, but we're, but we're missing the substantive things of Christianity. And so, you know, if, uh, Matthew five, six, and seven is a great place to start, but after the Beatitudes, um, Jesus then talks about the, the church, the lamb, and he calls it a lampstand, a city set on a hill and so forth. And then he immediately goes into, don't think I came to reduce don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to put them into force. And the Greek there means I came to empower them to, for you to do. And so uh, one of the, you know, as we're going to look, when we get to the negative case, uh, for, again, 25 or 30 weeks, we're going to look at various isms, you might say, various ideologies that, that, that evangelicals have. One of those is called antinomianism. And it's the idea, because I'm not under law uh, and I'm under grace, uh, the law is not important. And whenever you do that, because you're created in the image of God, and therefore we are by nature creatures of law, what we will do is substitute our own legalisms. And that's why various Christian groups have all sorts of extra-biblical rules about how you wear your hair, whether you can have blue jeans or pierce your ears or 
think Emily, happy birthday. Uh, I used to tease Emily all the time because she was you know, brought up that she wasn't supposed to pierce her ears and wear blue jeans. So I was uh, very happy when she got blue jeans and pierced ears <laughs> a few years back. Uh, because, you know, all this, all, and various groups have different extra biblical laws. You know, um, so, you know, but uh, extra biblical laws uh, have a, are, are just the tip of the iceberg. It represents a whole approach to, to, to Christ that will keep you away from Christ. And wherever you see that, uh, the knowledge of God is almost entirely lacking. So that's, that's kind of important. All right, so that's uh, why we have that new uh, in italics subtitle. Hopefully, I won't have to uh, say that a bunch of times. So today, we're going to start on the positive side of things, and we're going to talk about the infallible, effectual, living word of the living God. Now, uh, so the, the idea of infallible, effectual, living word of the living God I, I want to remind us of something we've learned in the past. We've talked about an idea called the locus classicus. And the locus classicus um, is, is defined right there under Roman numeral 6a, definitions. The locus classicus, which uh, 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 plural is loci classicus. I can't remember how to pronounce it. Loci classici, but uh, in any case, it's when you have more than one scripture that you're talking about as the locus classicus. But it's basically the primary or central or the most direct scripture or passage that illuminates or elucidates. Nathan, why don't you get on that a little bit? Uh, Get that door locked for one thing. <laughs> That's too much. Daniel Gray. Um, uh, <laughs> All right, we're. Okay. Now. So the two primary scriptures that have to do with this idea, one is Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. We're short on time, so I got up here a little bit late. We're going to work on these things. For as the rain and the snow comes down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the water, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Now, uh, what the idea is simply this. Infallible, we, we uh, think of the doctrines, we talked about this in, um, in part A, of inerrancy and infallibility. So the, the, the idea that the Bible is inerrant based on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 and so forth, is the idea that it is without uh, mistakes. Okay? The idea that it's uh, infallible is, is that it's without error. 
that it's always correct, it's completely trustworthy, but it means more than that. Uh, infallibility additionally means that the word of God spoken or inscripturated, that is written in the Bible, when we say inscripturated, we mean the written, the Bible, is absolutely authoritative in all the universe. So when God speaks something, therefore, logically in necessity, it's effectual. It can't be stopped from happening. No one can, it's, it's futile to resist the Lord. Now, there is a whole kingdom. Uh, there is a, the Bible, there clearly is a Satan, and he clearly has fallen angels. And there are clearly uh, demonic spirits. Those are two different kinds of beings. Fallen angels and demons are not the same type of being. That's another whole teaching in itself. They wish to oppose God, but I even their efforts end up serving God's purpose always. The reason you have uh, a battle with demonic spirits is you need them in terms of your growth and sanctification in the Lord. They're God's gift to you. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> so the word of God always prevails over all factors throughout time, space, history, and the entire creation continuum from the, from the beginning to the end. Stemming from the attributes of God, which is a whole subject that we emphasize a lot in this church, books, uh, one of the... Uh, books on the attributes of God is actually our book of the year uh, this year. It, uh, stemming from his attribute, his word must always accomplish the purpose for which he sent it. That's what we mean by it's effectual. Now, producing a predictable, valid, binding, intended, unstoppable, immutable consequence or outcome, or sequence of events, is what we mean by effectual. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And what scientists have now discovered is something the Bible revealed in, for, you know, for the last, let's see, a little over 4,000 years, the book of Genesis was written by Moses, uh, as, a, as a true and valid historical account of the way God created things. And when the Hebrew says, let there be light, it actually means, it's, it, it, the tense is ongoing. Uh, so it means let there be light, 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 Like, you know, if you're old enough to know what a uh, vinyl album was, uh, it's like if it gets stuck, you know. Uh, <laughs> Or if you have kids, you probably... <laughs> and they want something that you're saying no to. You probably know what that means, too. Uh, but scientists now know that, the, that there are galaxies still rolling out, and there's still new stars, and this is the, the universe is still unfolding. But Genesis 1 told us that 4,000 years ago. And scientists are really proud of themselves that they discovered that in the last 50 or 60 years. They should have consulted Moses. So, in order for the Bible, whether it's uh, spoken, 
written or otherwise communicated to be effectual, uh, it must of necessity be living and it must be active. In other words, things can't be effectual if they're not living and they're not active. You know, like if you watch any crime kind of shows or movies, they always say like dead men tell no, you know, they don't make good witnesses, right? So, a lot, you know, a lot of detective stories and whatever is, you know, uh, someone is trying to eliminate the witness ahead of time to, uh, to get, you know, and so forth. Because things have to be living and active to have an impact. So the word of God is not a dead word. It's not just a written dry word. It's a, it's a living word. And it always has the impact for which God sent it. Let's jump down to, there's some examples of this in the in lower, I'm going to jump down to one, the second one. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, Paul is talking to the, to the Christians in the city of Thessalonica, and he had spoken to them and planted a church there by, share, by proclaiming the resurrection of Christ and the other key elements of the biblical Christian gospel. So he tells them that he thanks God that when they heard his message, they received it for what it is, the word of God and not just the word of men. And therefore, it also performs its work in those who believe. Now, the Bible makes very clear in lots of places, Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 11, for instance, call Jesus the initiator or the author and the completer or perfecter of our faith. You didn't decide to come to Christ, as Catherine talked about some of the, uh, the, you know, the ideas like total depravity and, and uh, irresistible grace and so forth. You were avoiding becoming a Christian as best you could. And God, uh, you know, like in the book of Acts, when uh, it says... Uh, that they continued to speak, and therefore many believed. So uh, jumping back up the, the, to point seven at the top of the, uh, the back, back page, the locus classicus, the, the best scripture for the idea of living and active, is Hebrews 4.12. So again, the locus classicus is the idea that most major biblical ideas have it uh, one or so, sometimes one, two, or three, uh, scriptures that speak to that idea directly, and you need to put those in the middle of your thinking. And then you start to deal with these uh, scriptures that touch on it peripherally, and, and you place that in your thinking against the backdrop of the whole scripture. Because scripture always interprets scripture. That's one of the great hermeneutical principles. You, to, to understand Scripture, you need to know the whole Scripture. Now, there is the doctrine called the clarity of Scripture that when you begin to study Scripture, God is so gracious that if, if he is drawing you into his kingdom and, you are, and he is granting you repentance that leads to life, Romans 2, 4, Acts 11, 18, if he is granting you repentance that leads to life, 
then he will actually make some things clear to you as you go, especially the most important uh, central ideas. But to continue that process of growing in the clarity of the understanding and the knowledge of God, you must put it in the context of the whole scripture. So Hebrews 4.12, one of the verses I encourage people to memorize when they're getting started. For the word of God is living and active. Notice the ands here. I have the ands underlined. So that the, and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So let's break down a few important words in this uh, The Word of God refers to three things in the Bible. One, when God speaks directly from his being, like we already talked about in Genesis 1, let there be light, like Psalm 29 talks about the deer calving and so forth. At Jesus' baptism, uh, God the Father spoke audibly, uh, quoting Isaiah 42.1, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, Look at Isaiah 42.1. Matthew 3.17 is a quote from that. Um, When Paul encounters Jesus on the road, and Jesus uh, says audibly to him, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul knows he's dealing with God because the word Lord is reserved for God himself. And he says, who art thou, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Revelation 1, when uh, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and uh, it's quite clearly a revelation of Jesus Christ speaking to him. Secondly, Jesus is, is called the Word of God. He's the eternal Word of God the eternally begotten Word of God, as John 1, 1 through 4, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and so forth. Hebrews 1, talking about God spoke in times past in many ways through prophets, and so forth. In these last days, he has spoken to us directly in his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word of God and a Word of God. Uh, Revelation 19.13, one of the names of Jesus written right on his robe is the Word of God. Thirdly, when the Bible speaks of the Word of God, it's speaking of the Holy Scriptures. The 39 books of the Jewish or Hebrew Scriptures and the 27 books of the New Covenant. They are also called the Bible, the Word of God, sacred writ, sacred writing, sacred text, the good book, and so forth. Secondly, it's living. Now, it's important to understand that in Greek, this word living is uh, zao. I have, a, I have a granddaughter named Zoe, and that name comes from this word. And there are three words in Greek which have to do with life. Bios, which we get biology from. Suke, which is the, life of, the sole life of human beings. Uh, and, and, and zoos, which is the eternal life that, that, it, that is, comes from, is initiated, sustained, and continued by God himself. So 
uh, it's important to know which, which life word you're using. And in Hebrews 4.12, uh, it uses the word zoe, just like it does in, in 1 Peter 1.23 listed below. Um, it means eternal life. Now, life is always reproductive or creative. Now, that's important to understand. You know, if you know anything as a teenager, you have to start taking certain steps if you don't want to reproduce, like save sex for marriage. Uh, healthy, uh, living things always reproduce. And if you don't want to reproduce, you should uh, do certain things accordingly. So something that's alive will always reproduce, and the life, the, the whole point of the Bible from the beginning, the dominion mandate, God told human beings to be fruitful and to multiply and, and to take dominion. A step toward what we're called to do in terms of taking dominion, which we can't expand on today, uh, is we must be reproductive first. The first way we take dominion in the earth is by making disciples. And those disciples have to have a certain quality of life. Daniel Gray looks like John and Leah Gray. Oh, almost knocked over my water. You know, when, pe when people reproduce, it's amazing how much little kids always look like their dad, their mom, or usually a combination of both, right? And they often have much better, deeper characteristics of both parents than just the looks. You know, one of the things we always encourage, uh, like the Bible says, let marriage be held in honor among all and the marriage bed be un undefiled. The best way to let marriage be held in honor among all is to make sure that mature, honorable people enter into it. Well, one of the best things you can do, like the number one thing you can do if you love your children, that this far is far more important than your skills as a dad or your skills as a mom, is your skills in terms of having a great marriage. That will affect the maturity of your children even more than everything you try to do as a dad or a mom. Now, that's the second thing, is be a good dad, be a good mom. But the first thing is if you really love your children, love your wife. Romans 10, 14 through 17, I put that in a little bolder print so that uh, because there wasn't room for it, but look it up for yourself. How can they believe unless they hear and so forth? Uh, it's living. It's active. And the word active is very important. It's the Greek word energes. Uh, we get energy from that. And, it, and it's the same root word as what when we talk about the motivational gifts or the gifts of temperament. And um, it, it's active, dynamic, operative, effectual, powerful. In other words, it's, it's not just active in that it's doing stuff. Little kids play with Play-Doh and stuff. That's good. They're active. And, and, and I like, uh, I especially, I was driving up uh, from the inner city uh, downtown area, uh, Puffman, and I saw some kids on their bike, and I said, 
How nice to see them out on their bike instead of maybe sitting in front of a TV set or a video screen. You know, active is one thing, but biblically active is powerful, effective. That word, when it says it's living and active, that it, he's actually uh, uh, stating the doctrine that the Bible is effectual by using that word. The Bible has impact, the impact that God sent it for. Lastly, it's piercing. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So if you think about Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And you compare that to, say, Acts 2.37 at the end of Peter's day of Pentecost speech. It says when they, they were pierced to the heart. And they said, what shall we do? Because he had just told a group of 3,000 people, think about this. Like we try to avoid all offenses and be nasty, nice, and modern Christianity and so forth. And we have seeker-sensitive churches. And we try to avoid all, any offenses of the gospel and words like sin and, and confession of sin and repentance and being convicted of our sins. But he just spent uh, 20 verses telling them, you're murderers. <laughs> and Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You murderers. <laughs> and they didn't just murder any old pe person. They mur murdered the Messiah they'd been waiting for, is what he's telling them. And you went out of your way to aggressively, actively murder God himself. That was a great opening sermon, wasn't it? <laughs> that was the first sermon of the Christian church. He started by, we, these men are not drunk as you suppose. <laughs> because um, it's too early in the morning for that. And uh, <laughs> that, you know, I don't know if he just couldn't think of something better or what. But, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, then he went on to tell them, you're a bunch of murderers. <laughs> And Jesus loves the little children. <laughs> so uh, the word of God is able to, to help people. Nothing, nothing, nothing. No one, no, no thing in the entire universe can actually help us see our hearts correctly except the word of God. And our hearts are desperately wicked. Ask me how I know. We'll have lunch in a few minutes, so you can ask me. How do you, how do you know so much about sin? <laughs> That's the one subject I'm an expert on. I'm, you know, I'm trying to learn other things, but I'm pretty good at knowing about sin because I, you know, like I've had a lot of experience, more than most of you, because I'm 63 and a lot of you look like you're a little younger than that. Um... Don't worry, you'll catch up. Um, <laughs> all right, so lastly, uh, uh, point B there, I'll let you uh, do for your own. Now, at the end of it where it says some biblical examples of the word of God, you know, there's a thing we always do today, like we go, too soon? Uh, is it, was it too soon to make a joke about this or that? It, really, 
um, if I, you know, I, I have a rule that I keep the outline to whatever I can fit on the front and back of a page, but I could easily fill up two more pages of scriptures that show us the word of God did this and the word of God did that. Right? And so uh, I encourage you to give some thought to that this week. I was very encouraged by uh, Sydney and Melody uh, when we had dinner at their house. They uh, explained that they, in their nightly devotions after dinner, they actually used the scripture readings from the from last week's service as what they meditate on and do a different scripture reading each night. I'd encourage you not to just hear a message like this and then just go home and forget it. Um, Believe me, this is something you need to put some thought into. If you're struggling in your Christian life, think about your relationship to the Word of God, both in terms of your study of it and whether you're a forgetful hearer or an effectual doer. And are you making practical plans to be an effectual doer? Like, you know, you might need to change some things in your life if you're going to try to overcome this or that or another thing. Or if you're going to try to grow in this or that way. It doesn't just happen. You have to do some effectual things. So uh, check those scriptures out for yourself I put one of my favorites first. There's an old uh, uh, classical music piece that's for a choir and so forth that from Jeremiah 23, 9, is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock. I lo- I lo- so hammers do stuff. They break rocks. And uh, just ask Levi if he, if he had a hammer. If I had a hammer, he'd break some things with it. Uh, <laughs> So uh, let's uh, get John Gray or, or not John Gray, Daniel Williams.